The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Does anybody here feel that way? Sometimes you just thirst after God. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Okay, our sermon today is entitled, Once Saved, Always Saved, or Not So. All right. I am going to give you three different uh, sections in this sermon, and I will tell you that the second section may be a little tedious to you. In order to justify the stand that I have, I'm going to take some verses which are always taken out of context concerning the loss of salvation, and I'm going to analyze them. And that analysis is going to be from my daily commentary. Anybody that reads my daily commentary knows I got a couple hands up there they know that I get a little bit wordy at times. And with this, it's probably the longest of wordy wordies that I've ever done because it takes precision to understand the Word of God. You can't just take a verse and say, see, this says that sometimes. You have to understand what it is actually relaying to you. So I want you to be advised of that in advance, but pay attention because if you haven't read that commentary and you ever have those verses put to you, you'll know where to go at least to get the proper analysis. Okay, we're going to read from Psalm 71, verses 14 through 16. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day. For I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. Each day begins for me by getting up and typing a commentary on a verse of the Bible. Right now, I'm going through 2 Peter for the second time, and I'm refining my commentary that I wrote many years ago. That's actually what's being published, but I am already typing the commentaries in 1 John. That will be coming out in just a couple more days. We'll be starting the book of 1 John. The day that I typed this sermon... After typing the commentary and before starting here, I went to emails to see if there was anything pressing or if there was anything simple and which could be responded to in less than a minute or so. There were a few quick emails to answer and the rest will just have to wait. I'm sorry, but brevity is the key to getting a response from me. 
type a long email and you will go to the back of the line for a response. What was propitious is that one of the short emails that I responded to and also the closing comments of the Bible commentary that I typed both fit into the context of today's doctrine sermon. First, from the email. Have you ever produced a salvation message geared to children or do you know of any? That was the entire email. May the Lord bless such brevity. My answer to him was, not that I can remember, a reason why it shouldn't really be necessary is something I mentioned in the sermon we did at the church yesterday. The gospel is the epitome of simplicity. It tells what God did in Christ to restore us as is detailed in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, where it says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel message. So just simply explain what it means to the youngest child or to the wisest professor. Christ died for our sins. Have you ever disobeyed mom or told a lie? Any and all must acknowledge yes if they're truthful. Jesus died for that. He was buried proving he was dead and he was raised proving he had no sin. The sin he died for was yours and mine, not his. As only God is without sin, then Jesus is God. That simple message is all that is needed. In fact, anything beyond that is not the simple gospel. Then you simply ask, do you believe that God did this for you? If yes, then thank God for sending his son and accept it as the full payment for what you have done wrong. That is all that is needed according to scripture. Upon belief, the person is sealed with God's spirit as a guarantee of his salvation. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And from my commentary on 2 Peter 1, verse 15, in the life application section of the commentary, I said the following. There are still thousands of unique languages without a copy of the Bible. Christian churches spend a great deal of money sending missionaries overseas to evangelize the lost. This is most noteworthy, but without a strong follow-up, only the people who originally hear the word will benefit. Therefore, it is important to not only tell of Jesus, but also to put in place safeguards so that the message will continue to be told. One way of doing this is schooling, raising up elders, and establishing churches. However, without a copy of the Bible, bad doctrine can easily creep in. Likewise, missionaries from non-conforming sects, such as the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, can come in and steal away the truth. To provide copies of the Bible in English is arrogant and presumptuous when it isn't in the native language of the people. Therefore, it has been the practice of faithful Christians throughout the ages to translate the Bible into the languages of the natives. What do these two thoughts, a question about salvation and an impetus to have both trained people and a copy of scripture available to those who receive the gospel, have to do with one another? Our text verse comes from 2 Peter, it's chapter 1, it's verses 5 through 9, verses that I think everybody here should at least memorize what the content is and where to find it, even if you don't remember the verses themselves. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, 
you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, here it is, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If the person who emailed me was wondering about a gospel message for children because he was wanting to evangelize his own child, then he was wanting to ensure that his child would call on Jesus and be saved. My answer that the simple gospel is the only gospel is true. We don't need an elaborate presentation. We just present what the Bible presents and accept that what God has presented is reliable and effective. But what if this person told his child the gospel Then the child, we'll say one that is only six years old, accepts the message, and then the person dies the next day. Without this Christian influence in the child's life, that child may go off on many unhealthy paths. He is a human after all. And what about the folks in the jungle of Papua New Guinea? A missionary comes into a village, tells the gospel, and the whole village gladly receives the good news of God in Christ. They all believe and are baptized, grateful for the salvation that God has granted. But a week later, the missionary is eaten by a saltwater crocodile. After He was actually doing it while baptizing the people, and the missionary got eaten, but the, the person got saved. Okay, we'll leave it at that. A group of Mormons comes in after that. They establish a church based on Mormon doctrine, and everyone starts attending there. They had no discipleship beyond their conversion, and they had no copy of Scripture left in their native language. They have even, as Peter says, forgotten they were cleansed from their old sins. What will happen to that child who received Christ by faith? What will happen to that village who gladly came to Christ? The answer you give will show just how much you understand or fail to understand several key words which the Bible uses, especially the meaning of the words gift and grace. It will also reveal your understanding concerning several key concepts, such as the nature of God and the weight of his decrees. We started with the sovereignty of God for a reason. We've gone through a logical progression of doctrine in these sermons so that you understand what we are getting to in this sermon today. The issue of whether one can lose his salvation or not is one of the most important issues that can be addressed in Scripture. It calls into question the truth of God in Jesus Christ, the surety possessed by any person who has been saved, and also the efficacy of what Jesus did. Was it sufficient or not? This is not a minor issue, but it is the heart of the matter in salvation. It must be addressed, and it must be faithfully answered, and it can be, right from the Word of God. And so, let's turn to that precious Word once again, and may God speak to us through His Word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is scriptural and logical reasons for eternal salvation. The gospel is stated in our opening comments. It is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul tells how to appropriate that in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
That is the gospel and the means of receiving it in order to be saved. Paul also gives these words to show that there is nothing beyond that gospel which man must do or indeed can do in order to be saved. He says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift, the gift, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is unmerited favor. Anything, anything at all which is added to grace negates grace. A gift is something that cannot be earned. It is something given without any strings attached, and it is something that once given away now belongs wholly and entirely to who? The recipient, the person who is given that gift. A gift which is or can be recalled, I'm sorry to say it, is not a gift. Paul then tells what the effects of salvation of this gift are in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I know I've read all of these verses in the previous sermons. I want you to know them well. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says that upon belief, a person is saved. When this happens, he is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The word for sealed here is sfragizo. It signifies, and this is the Helps Word Studies definition of this word, it signifies ownership and the full security carried by the backing, meaning full authority, of the owner. Sealing in the ancient world served as a legal signature, which guaranteed the promise, meaning the contents of what was sealed. You have been signed by God with the Holy Spirit. That is the highest seal in the universe and nothing can revoke it. God cannot revoke it without being untruthful and God is not untruthful. The seal then is as sure as a signature of ownership by God. No higher seal than this can be found in heaven or on earth and no power can reclaim from God what God has sealed. Further, it is something that is given and will never be taken back. If it were to be taken back, then it means that God has made a mistake in his sealing, something which is impossible. The logical progression of what Paul says is, one, a person hears the word of truth, the gospel of his salvation. Two, he believes the message. Three, he is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Four, he is now entitled to all of the benefits that the Jews, as an inheritance, also received by that same process of faith, there being one gospel alone for both Jew and Gentile. Next, the word for guarantee is arabon. It is a rare word found only three times in the New Testament. It means properly, once again, helps word studies, definition, an installment, a deposit, a down payment, which guarantees the balance, the full purchase price. It is the regular term in New Testament times for earnest money, Meaning, advance payment that guarantees the rest will be given. It then represents full security backed by the purchaser who supplies sufficient proof they will fulfill the entire pledge, meaning the promise. Understanding the meaning of this word, it is impossible that there could later be a loss of salvation for a person who has, at any time in his life, believed in him and been saved. If God seals us with his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, and if we can lose that, then one, the gift was not a gift at all. 
as it can be taken back. The term gift is then a lie. Two, it was not a very good guarantee. In fact, it was no guarantee at all. God's decree has failed. Three, it is by default of our effort and not of God that we are saved. If we can lose our salvation at any time after having it granted, then it was never of grace in the first place. By default, it must be of works. Four, God made a mistake in sealing with his guarantee. As God cannot make a mistake because he knows the end from the beginning, a person who believes salvation can be lost is now following a false god. Five, it would diminish the value of Christ's atoning shed blood, which was used for the purchase of the possession. His cross is, by default, unable to procure and secure that for which it was intended. As noted, the word arabon is found only three times in the New Testament. The other two times are in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22 and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 5. In all three uses, it is referring to the pledge of the Holy Spirit. He is our surety and our guarantee. As this is the sealing of God in us, it represents the highest of all authorities. It further represents an eternal decree of God. It can never be undone without violating the initial decree. As we learned in a previous doctrine sermon, God's decrees are unconditional and they are eternal. Therefore, the believer is 100% secure as he awaits the redemption of the purchased possession. What is being referred to here is, as Charles Ellicott says, the complete and final salvation from sin and death. This indicates the result of the action and not the action itself. In other words, we have already been purchased by and through the work of Christ. This is evidenced by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God cannot lie. The salvation of the one who has believed the gospel is secure. And all of this is, as Paul says, to the praise of his glory. Vincent's Word Studies notes that this final clause is to be taken together with the words, you were sealed. Our sealing is to the praise of his glory because it conforms to God's purpose as it respects himself. This isn't so much for ourself as his own integrity that he seals us and says, you are saved. Those who teach that one can lose his salvation then state the following. One, what Christ did is ineffectual for the purpose it was intended. Two, God's gift of salvation, meaning Christ Jesus, must be earned. It is not a gift. Three, salvation is not of grace, but of works. Four, God's sealing of the Holy Spirit has no value beyond human ability. And five, God's guarantee is conditional upon human action, which is fallible, forgetful, and futile. Further, to teach that one can lose his salvation demonstrates a complete misunderstanding or a total rejection of what Christ did in regard to the law and its effects for the people of the world. The law of Moses was given to Israel and only to Israel, but, and people miss this, it is the standard which God has set for judgment. This is true because Jesus Christ came under the law of Moses. Therefore, in man's judgment, whether Jew or Gentile, the comparison is not to some dubious standard. The comparison is to Christ, who came under the law. It is his perfection, which is the standard by which all will be judged. Paul shows us in Romans 6, 14, and 15 that for those in Christ, they are not under law, but they are under grace. 
He further explains in Romans 10 verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, for the one who has placed his faith in Christ, he is their righteousness. In him, the requirements of the law have been met and the law is dead to them. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 20 that by law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans 6.23, he then says that the wages of sin is death. Death is the payment for sin which comes through law. But Paul then says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's gift is given. The demands of the law are satisfied in him, and therefore the believer is not under law. Without law, there can be no imputation of sin. And this is what Paul says is the case for those in Christ. He says that God is reconciling the world to himself, not imputing trespasses to them, and committed to us the word of reconciliation. This, then, is the fundamental misunderstanding of those who believe one can lose his salvation. Sin is the problem, which leads to death and separation from God. Sin comes through law. Those not under law are not imputed sin. Therefore, they cannot lose their salvation. Does everybody understand the logic? It is one plus one equals two basic mathematics, if you think it through. If God did count sin against the man in Christ, then it would mean that God has not accepted Christ's fulfillment of the law for that man or any man ever in human history. The entire point of Christ's coming is wasted if even one person who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ is lost. And if one person is lost, then none will ever be saved. The efficacy of what Jesus Christ did is obliterated by those who teach that salvation can be lost. As stated already, God's decrees are unconditional. Those who believe that the decree of salvation is conditional have no understanding of the nature of God or of the eternal nature of his spoken word. To understand salvation on a basic level, all one needs to do is look to Israel. God made a promise to Israel that he would never reject them, no, never, ever, even when they rejected him. His word is his guarantee, and his honor is what is at stake. It is to the praise of his glory, not Israel's, not ours. It is to the praise of his glory. This was not for their sake, but for his name's sake. The salvation or rejection of Israel by God is the template for the salvation or rejection of each individual in Jesus Christ. As he said to Israel in Ezekiel 36, verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. Though individuals were cut off, it was not to individuals that the covenant with Israel was made. It was made with the people collectively. In the new covenant, God promises salvation through his covenant of grace, not only to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah collectively, but he applies it to individuals. If God were to reject Israel, he could not be trusted. His word is given and it must come to pass. The same is true with each person in Christ, of which Israel is the template. His word is given, and that person's salvation must come to pass, or God cannot be trusted. 
Despite Israel's failings, they remain collectively saved. And thus, despite our failings, we remain individually saved. We can ask, what sin would separate us from God's salvation in Christ? The answer comes back in several ways. First, 1 Corinthians 5. A man is noted as committing an offense not even named among the Gentiles. It's the worst offense that Paul could possibly think of. So perverse were his actions that Paul instructed the congregation to expel him from the fellowship. They were to, as Paul says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Here it is, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He may die in the process of his sinful life, but he remains saved. Secondly, can walking away from the faith result in the loss of salvation? I get that question asked all the time. The answer is again, no. From 1 Timothy chapter 1, here it says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, here it is, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. These two rejects, their names are Hymenaeus and Alexander, had shipwrecked their faith. They had left the proper path, and Paul gave them the exact same treatment that he had instructed the Corinthians to give to the other offender, handing them over to Satan. The implication is that they remain saved, but will suffer affliction in this life and loss in the next. There is no incident in Scripture where a person is said to have lost his salvation, and there is no verse in Scripture which supports a loss of salvation, as we will see after a very short poetic break. <laughs> Who can find the end of God's grace? Who can say it goes this far, but no further does it go? Can you, this attribute of God, erase? The answer comes back from the heavens with a resounding, no, what God has done is because of who he is. When he grants salvation, it is a gift handed out to you. He will never take back a gift. He is not in that biz. Rather, his word stands firm because he is ever faithful and true. Praise be to God who does not forget his word, but sends it forth as a testimony of his mercy and grace. And to the ends of the earth, his message will be heard to those who come to Jesus. Upon them will forever shine his Face. Our second thought today is proper context and right division. This is the one that's going to be a little tedious or difficult for you. Go home and read it 4,000 times and you will get it. In biblical interpretation, context is king. It is the primary point of consideration. Before anything else is necessary to determine the applicability of a passage or verse. For the doctrine of salvation, including whether it can be lost or not, the context is that of post resurrection. Please understand that. Before Christ died, it doesn't apply. Does everybody get that? Until he died, he couldn't take care of your sin problem. Generally, verses or precepts prior to Christ's work in the fulfillment of the law, which includes Christ's death as a part of that fulfillment, are not acceptable to be considered in the context of salvation. The law was not fulfilled. Christ had not died for our offenses, and he had not been raised for our justification. Therefore, if someone cites a verse from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, as proof that one can lose his salvation, you know what you can do? You can immediately toss that one out. The words are spoken to Israel 
under the law. The context is wrong and therefore their analysis is also wrong. There is no need to go any further. People send me verses all the time from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I, I don't even address them. I say it's the wrong dispensation. Those verses don't apply, and I start addressing their other questions. The book of Acts is a descriptive account of the establishment of the church. It prescribes almost nothing. With very few exceptions, if someone uses the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner, that analysis is to be tossed out. The context is wrong, and therefore the analysis is also wrong. The epistles are where church age doctrine comes from. If one is to also include Revelation 1 through 3 in this analysis, which is not unacceptable, the context still needs to be maintained. Who is being addressed? Under what circumstances are the words being written? Are the words speaking about individuals or a group of people? Does the verse stand alone, or is it a part of a greater whole? what brought about the issue, and so on. All of this must be considered. An example of this is the often misused verse of Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Sounds like you're going to lose your salvation. Wrong. This verse has nothing to do with individual salvation. Jesus is speaking to a church not to individuals. This is even explicitly explained in chapter 1, where he says that the lampstand represents the church. To have a lampstand removed then is to no longer be recognized as an acceptable church. It has nothing to do with individual salvation. That verse can be tossed out. This idea of corporate addressee resolves several of the most often misunderstood verses concerning loss of salvation in Scripture. In particular, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Who is being spoken to? The answer is yes, the Hebrew people. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says the following, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. This set of verses here has nothing to do with individual salvation. It has to do with the corporate group known as Israel. Everything the author says is in the plural, but to settle this, we will spend the next several, and I mean several minutes or more, going through these verses individually, maintaining that context and seeing what they are saying. Before I go on, I cut these comments short for you so that you wouldn't have a brain attack, okay? This is not my full commentary on these verses. Verse 6-4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. The letter is written to Hebrew Christians. The temple was standing at the time of the letter to the Hebrews, as can be determined from other verses within the letter itself. The content of Hebrews is pertinent to today's church as well, but the specific addressees are the Hebrew people. With this understanding, the words of this verse are not directed specifically to the Gentile-led church age, nor to individual salvation. The words, for it is impossible... The words themselves call to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 19:26. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. However, I hate to tell you, but some things are, in fact, impossible for God. He cannot violate one of his own attributes. He is righteous, and he cannot, therefore, commit unrighteousness. 
such as the case with all of his attributes. What Jesus was referring to were things which were not logically or morally impossible for God. When I say logically, God cannot make two one. A two is a two, and it will always be a two. You see what I'm saying? I'm not talking about male and female. I'm talking he cannot make a blue or red. There are things that are logically impossible. There are things that are morally impossible for God. Man cannot save himself through his own merits, but man can be saved through the merits of Christ. The words for those, the words are not in the singular, but are rather in the plural, those. This will continue throughout all three verses. It is speaking about a collective whole. Who were once enlightened? This is a metaphor, which is used in Hebrews 10, verse 32, where it is again in the plural. There it applies in a general manner to all who are addressed. Here, it is speaking of a certain group who have been enlightened. From this, the words will explain what that enlightenment means. And having tasted. To taste something in scripture is to experience or understand that thing. In Hebrews 2, 9, guess what? Jesus tasted death for everyone. He experienced death, but it was also something that was, at least in the case of believers, something that could be tasted vicariously. He tasted death for Charlie Garrett, but Charlie Garrett gets taken up at the rapture in 30 seconds from now, and I never taste death. You see, it can be tasted vicariously. Some will never taste death because he died on our behalf. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, the rapture. The next words, the heavenly gift. There's a parallelism with the words here and the words of chapter 2 of Hebrews. In verse 3, it speaks of salvation, tasted. And in verse 4, it speaks of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the heavenly gift. The heavenly gifts, those of the Holy Spirit, are the proof of salvation. These were imparted to the Jews of Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2.38, Peter, while speaking to the Jews of Israel, not to the Gentile-led church, promised that they would likewise receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus. We covered those verses in another sermon earlier. If you don't remember it, go back and watch it, okay? That is a descriptive account of what happened. It is not prescriptive. This is something that occurred differently in order and in requirement in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans and again in Acts chapter 10 with the Gentiles in Caesarea. So if you say you have to apply Acts chapter 2 to your salvation, what about Acts chapter 8 or what about Acts chapter 10? They contradict each other. It is descriptive, it is not prescriptive, and therefore it is not contradictory. God is revealing something to you in those passages. We've done that on the blackboard many times. We can do it again sometime for you, okay? So there you go with that. The author of Hebrews is writing to this same group of people, the Hebrews, to instruct them in how to properly understand what reception of this gift then means to them as a collective whole, the words, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They, the collective whole, but not necessarily every one of them, tasted the gifts of the Spirit because they had partaken of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Those who so tasted can only mean true believers. When we partake of something, we participate in that thing. The Holy Spirit is the gift, and the gift itself is what bears the heavenly quality. This is the state of things so far in the first of these three rather complicated verses. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift are those who have understood the message which they heard, whether they collectively, Israel collectively, accepted it or not. They have in their mind all of the knowledge sufficient to be saved through the work of Jesus Christ. Theirs is no longer a problem with comprehending the message, but the collective heart, the collective heart of Israel hasn't been touched 
something which must occur. Everybody agree with that? Collective Israel is still not collectively saved. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit are those who have seen the effective power of God displayed in the lives of the converted among them. They may have personally witnessed the miracles and the power of Jesus and or of the apostles, or they may have seen the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrated in the conversion of another. They have shared in this experience. This does not necessarily mean that all of those in this collective have received the Holy Spirit personally. That's coming in Zechariah chapter 12, 14, one of the two. I don't remember off the top of my head. Coming soon to a dispensation near you, okay? Verse 6, 5. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. The words, and have tasted the good word of God. Again, to taste is to experience. The good word of God is the gospel message of Jesus, the Messiah of the Hebrews, who are the recipients of this epistle, and all of the sound doctrine which pertains to this word. It is an acceptance of the truth of Jesus, the Messiah, as scripture testifies too. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The language here speaks of the Hebrew people collectively having tasted this good word of God. First, while the temple was still standing, the Jews had this taste, and yet, as a people, they adamantly remained under the sacrificial system of temple worship. In the first century, these people had both the Old Testament and any word which was then in circulation, either orally or written, which confirmed Jesus' ministry and spoke of how the old was fulfilled in the new. By hearing and understanding this word, they could taste and understand its goodness. Adding in the demonstrable proofs of the apostles, which testified to the fulfillment of their scriptures in Jesus, they had surely tasted the good word of God. The words, and the powers of the age to come. The wording here is different than Hebrews 2 verse 5, though some translations make them the same in the English by saying the world to come. In Hebrews 2.5, it speaks of the inhabited world, cosmos, I believe. Here it is speaking of a cycle of time and thus an age, Ionis, I believe. In the end, they both look forward to the same thing, a taste of which was given to the Hebrews at Pentecost, and which will also be the case after the rapture of the church and during and after the tribulation period. There will be notable gifts of the Spirit then as there was at the beginning. Charles Ellicott states they were as truly anticipations of a future age of glory as was the heavenly gift and anticipation of the heavenly fatherland. These Hebrews had experienced these powers of the age to come. These powers most especially indicate the promised time when Jesus will return to rule the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. That's Revelation 2 verse 27. The Jewish people had seen or heard of this power demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very proof that Jesus is God. These points would have been made known to those who received this letter, that Jesus both fulfilled the role of Messiah and would return again in that capacity at some point in the future. To have an understanding of these wonderful tenets and then to reject them for an inferior system, meaning going back to the temple rites and sacrifices, would not only make no sense— but it would also show a complete lack of faith in God's provision, which was provided in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why I'm so vehemently opposed to what the Jews do in Israel with these sacrificial systems. God said they could do it. He gave them seven more years to do it, but it is not what God would intend for them. It is an allowance. We should not be happy that they're starting the temple. We should be in anticipation that we are out of here and 
that the Jews will get through that tribulation period and they will eventually get rid of those sacrifices and come to Jesus Christ. Verse 6, 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The author now begins with, if they fall away. There's actually no if in the Greek. The insert is based on a presupposition that the entire thought is hypothetical, but one which could not be expected to occur in reality. The words say, and then, or having fallen away. The verb is in the aorist tense. However, though if is not included in the thought, it is still, in a sense, a hypothetical postulation. From verse 6-4 until this point, the author has not said that such a thing has occurred, but he is proposing that it could and then stating what the results would be. In this case, and understanding that, at a specific time there was a falling away in this proposal which is being submitted, despite having tasted and participated in what was offered through the Holy Spirit, they fell away. It is a warning that in the rejection of the Lord, after they have tasted the heavenly gift and after they had tasted the good word of God, they would be considered as having fallen away, which is exactly what happened to Israel, and that's why they were exiled, okay? It is the same collective type of thought which was mentioned earlier in Hebrews, where the people failed to believe, and then they collectively did not enter God's rest. That was referring to the time of the people's rejection of the Lord in the book of Numbers, if it were to occur that this group of people fell away, it would be impossible, as the author says, to renew them again to repentance. The repentance speaks of turning the mind of the people once again to what they had already turned their minds to. Many in the collective have believed, but eventually the people as a whole, collective Israel, turned from this belief in or about Christ. They had been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and so on. To be renewed, in fact, implies that they had once been endowed with this tasting of Christ. Some were followers of the Messiah. The verb here for renew is now in the active voice. What this is telling us is that it is impossible for men. However, as seen from Jesus' words of Matthew 19, 26, what is impossible with men is not impossible for God. There can be no contradiction in Scripture, and so this must be considered Nothing that a man does to renew this group of people will be possible. But the truth is that nothing any person does can bring a person to salvation in the first place. Apart from God's specific revelation of himself, salvation is not possible. God has brought man to salvation through Jesus Christ. A man cannot save himself. The same is true with this verse right here concerning Israel. Scripture never shuts the door on forgiveness to anyone who repents concerning Jesus Christ. Nor does it shut the door on Israel as a collective whole. See Romans 9 through 11 or go back and watch the last sermon from Leviticus 26 and you will understand that. Therefore, when such a falling away occurs, as long as the condition lasts, which it is lasting right now in Israel, they are not calling on Jesus. A renewal is impossible. Everybody understand that? The words in no way mean that such a renewal is impossible, but that it cannot occur while the person or the group is living under an old economy which has found its fulfillment in Christ through the new covenant. As Cambridge notes, there can, he implies, be no second, second birth. The sternness of the passage is in exact accordance with Hebrews 10, 26 through 29, but the impossibility lies merely within the limits of the hypothesis itself. 
the words, since they crucify again. The Greek, as is translated by the Berean Study Bible, more closely reads, and then having fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Here it is, crucifying, present tense, in themselves the Son of God and subjecting him to open shame. It does not say again twice, rather it is only used once in relation to repentance. As far as the word crucify, the verb is a present participle, and thus the Berean Study Bible is correct in saying crucifying. It has the intent of crucifying as they are doing. Think of Israel right now. They are crucifying Christ every day when they wake up and they reject him. It does not imply absolute apostasy, but one which is continuous. The tense of the verbs went from past to present, such is the case with Israel today. They are crucifying the Lord through their rejection of him. The temple was standing, and we know a future temple will stand. To observe temple rites, to then come to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of those types and shadows, and then to return to those same temple rites, which only prefigured him, would be to reject what God has done in Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world. Therefore, the cross of Christ is no longer available to them because it no longer has the meaning they once assigned to it. The author then continues with, for themselves. This is a reflexive pronoun, dative, third person, plural. It should read in themselves or to themselves. As Cambridge notes, this is what is called the dative of disadvantage. It means to their own destruction. There is no human remedy for sin forgiveness, none. And the temple rites which looked forward to Christ are now in fact a human remedy to Israel. Only God can forgive, and that through Christ, who is, as it says, the Son of God. To take this course of action would then lead to the final words of the verses, and put him to open shame. What is the purpose of Christ's cross if Israel retreats to what only looked forward to that cross? That's why we've been going through the Old Testament, through the Levitical sacrifices. They only look forward to Christ. If you paid attention in even one sermon, you saw that every single sacrifice, every verse about every sacrifice, and every word in every verse about every sacrifice pointed to what? To Jesus Christ. Everybody got that? Meaning, observing the law of Moses. It is a shameful act which would, in turn, bring discredit upon the Lord who voluntarily took on the very sin which the temple rites could never expiate. This is what Israel did. After tasting his goodness, they shunned him and returned fully to temple worship. To this day, they are looking to reestablish the temple worship once again. What is seen here is merely a theoretical possibility concerning the salvation of God's people, Israel collectively. It is not speaking of what God has done in saving and sealing individuals under the new covenant. This is the same for Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 29, which people always cite to show that you can lose your salvation. We will not be analyzing that due to time constraints. For Israel, there is no finality in these three verses. Everything in scripture testifies to the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, which is by grace through faith. The author's warning is that for Israel to assume that going back to the temple rites will make them holy or make them more holy or bring them nearer to God is completely contradictory to the work of Jesus Christ himself. Further, the words of the author later in verse 9 
actually presuppose that this is, in fact, a hypothetical situation, which is being spoken of, and thus it is a doctrinal treatise for the church to read and learn from, and for the nation of Israel as a whole to do the same. Until they as a collective whole come to Christ, they can find no way of being restored to God. Those things of the old merely look forward to the new. Now, before I go on, does everybody see that theology is actually complicated? And for somebody to take those verses and just spew them out and say, see, you, they haven't taken anything in context. They have no basis for what they're saying. And they just say, see, you can lose your salvation. It's not even speaking about an individual. And unless you understand everything that we have gone through, the temple sacrifices and everything in numbers, all of these things, you cannot understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. And people say, I don't want to listen to the Old Testament. They have no foundation if they don't know what the Old Testament says because it is pointing to one thing and one thing alone, Jesus Christ. As I noted, the other set of verses which are often used to justify that one can lose his salvation are Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Like the previous verses, a proper evaluation of them, which you can find on my website, one of the two websites that I have, will likewise reveal that these words have nothing to do with the loss of individual salvation. This is true with other difficult verses like John 15, 6, which people will just spout out, okay? Time does not allow for a full evaluation of all of these verses or for any others which are brought into this false teaching by the theologically confused. For anyone who feels differently, my commentaries are available to them for their doctrinal correction. This is true for any other verse or verses that are incorrectly and haphazardly pulled out of their intended context. If you feel you have the verse which you believe clinches your claim concerning this matter, I have two points for you. One, you are wrong. And two, email me for the correction of your faulty analysis. Okay? Stand approved, obtain right doctrine, and don't continue to spout off the false doctrine which says that one can lose what God has given, sealed, and guaranteed. Your stubborn attitude in this actually, guess what? It diminishes the work of Jesus Christ, and thus the glory that God is due through the giving of his son. This cross here means almost diddly to people that believe they can lose their salvation. I don't even know what they're thinking. It's like they've been put in a bathtub, had their head held under too long, and the oxygen stopped. I can't understand it. In the end, simple logic concerning the nature of God refutes the idea of a loss of salvation. The written word combined with understanding his nature confirms this. And finally, taking all verses in their intended context. Context is king. Is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? And context, context, context. Those are your five rules for proper interpretation. The starting of them. Taking all verses in their intended context dispels any misunderstanding or misapplication of what is being conveyed. Saved once and forever through Christ's shed blood. Safe within him for now and for all eternity. Come and be rescued through the cleansing flood. His grace is a gift of love poured out abundantly. We praise you, O God, for what you have done. We thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. How glorious, O God, is the gift of your Son, for through him on us your salvation you have poured. Now and forever we give you thanks and praise. Yes, we shall hail your goodness and glory, even for eternal days. Our third and final thought today is rewards and losses. If you can't lose your salvation... But Paul hands somebody over to Satan. What's he doing? He's trying to get you to repent and turn back to your faith in Christ. And he's also telling you that you can lose something or gain something in your following of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. 
God's decrees are unconditional. What he has stated is done. Though we are still in this moral body, in God's mind, we were predestined, we were called, we are justified, and we are glorified. That is his decree, and it is immutable. Thank God that this process is once and forever behind us. However, because we are still in this body, there are consequences for not living as we should while we are still here. Those consequences will not affect our salvation, but they can affect us in several profound ways. One, in our earthly walk in physical or mental ways. Two, in the confidence of our walk with the Lord. And three, in our future rewards when we stand before the Lord. The first was alluded to by Paul concerning the sexually immoral man at Corinth. He instructed the church to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What that meant is to the consequences of his sin. He may suffer or die from a sexually transmitted disease. He may get shot by a jealous lover and so on. Any sin is destructive. A drunk may die from alcohol-related problems. A person taking drugs may contract a communicable disease, die of the effects of the drugs, and so on. This is what Paul meant. The second way our life can be negatively affected is through an uncertain walk with the Lord. Does anybody feel this at times? Because I do a lot. When we are not living for the Lord, it hinders our prayer life. Paul says this explicitly when husbands fail to honor their wives as they should. If prayers are hindered for that, then it is logical to assume that they will be hindered for other failings as well. Further, when one fails to live for the Lord, his personal testimony is harmed in the eyes of others. How can one be confident in the Lord, especially before others, when he isn't living as he should? Then thirdly, all that we do from the time we come to Christ is being evaluated for the day when we receive our judgment before him. Paul speaks of this day and what it means for the believer explicitly in both 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In his words are further confirmations. Guess what? Woohoo! The doctrine of eternal salvation. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 3. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Here it is. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all, all, this is speaking to believers in Jesus Christ, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It doesn't say that some of you that make it because you kept your salvation will appear there. The rest will go to the great white throne. It doesn't say that. All believers will go before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. We are not saved in order to then continue working to keep our salvation. 
something which both denies the grace of God and which excludes faith in his provision. Rather, we are saved in order to live faithful lives and lives of faith. Those things we do in faith for the Lord will receive rewards. Those things we do that are not in faith will receive none. And I would suggest to you this. Please consider this precept. For those who started in faith believing the gospel and then who later turn to the false teaching which says that salvation can be lost will receive no rewards for their conduct. Having started in grace, they have returned to works setting aside that grace. I know that sounds like a big pie to eat, but I believe that's true. They no longer believe that grace sustains them and they have to do something to be saved. How can God give them rewards when they're not living a life of faith? Everybody got that? And having started in faith, they no longer trust that the grace is sufficient. Therefore, and by default, they are no longer walking in faith. Thus, rewards are excluded. Such a person is ever striving to somehow earn the grace that he has set aside. Paul speaks in the same kind of tone in the book of Galatians about being circumcised. In such a walk, there is no room for failure, and there is no true joy in one's salvation. The doom of banishment is just one slip up away, and worse, there's nothing, nothing in Scripture to say what that one failure might be. Therefore, any failure at all is one of possible but uncertain condemnation. What a sad, vapid existence in Christ. And it's right on the border of Christ. I mean, it's just hanging on there, people. At the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned the scenario where a child was led to Christ and then he was no longer discipled. And also of the village that was led to Christ and then their mentoring ended. For the villagers, an aberrant cult came in. We said the Mormons at the time and re-educated them with a lie. What are the consequences of such things? Those people, I am telling you right now, they will remain saved because salvation is eternal. God has spoken and sealed and the deal is done. However, sadly, the next generation of those villagers, those children of those villagers, will never come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why it is incumbent on us to not only lead people to Christ, but to lead them to sound doctrine in Christ. Some years ago, this is an object lesson for you. Some years ago, I was friended by a person on Facebook who watched the prophecy updates. He was all excited about those prophecy updates, and he sent a gift to this church, a painting. However, many months later, when he, in his confused theology, found out that I teach the doctrine of eternal salvation, he emailed me and demanded his gift back. That, that right there is a marvelous object lesson for each one of you. Think about it. Think about the nature of what was supposed to be a gift. And think about the depravity of the giver who would do such a thing. Now think about the nature of God, the goodness of God in sending his son and what God has said in his word concerning this issue. Are you going to ascribe such a perverse nature to the giver of all good things? Israel's failings actually bring glory to God because he has stood beside them despite their vile, wicked conduct. And your failings, tragic as though they may be, will not be imputed to you as sin if you are in Christ. Such is the nature of God's grace. If you are one of the uninformed or willfully uneducated people who actually believes that you have to help God along in order to stay saved, you are to be pitied. Your walk has become a walk of works, and if of works, it is not of Jesus Christ. 
Such is not the case for those who have trusted and continue to trust in God's provision of unmerited favor in Christ. There are no loopholes in God's promise that a person is justified, sanctified, and glorified. It is a done deal. So rest in that blessed assurance and then go forth in faith and receive your rewards for the conduct of your life on that great day when you stand before the Lord who saved you once and forever. Call on Jesus and be saved. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of God which is found in the giving of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may somebody today have their doctrine corrected by this sermon, and may he learn to cling to your grace alone. Though he goes through many stumblings and failings, you have secured his salvation for all eternity. And give him the heart to live for you, and to live a life that will honor you by helping missionaries that are telling this wonderful message across the world, and by supporting people that are willing to go out on the streets and give this message to others. May it be so, and may it be that you will be glorified through our actions this day and for all the days of our life. Amen. I have a closing verse for you here from Revelation 22. It is verse 21. It is the last verse of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I'd like to read you something that came in at the same time I was typing this sermon. Charlie, I just wanted to say thank you for the wonderful Christmas gift. I wasn't sure if it was from you or the superior word. It doesn't matter. We're a church here. If I send it, it's on behalf of the church. But either way, we just wanted to express our gratitude for such an amazing display of generosity and love. Know that you and everyone at the superior word are in our prayers each night. We love you all and can't express how well-loved we feel knowing we have people back home supporting us and praying us through. Right now, we are in a, in a tribe called the Wagi and have a huge praise report. A half dozen men and women have placed their faith in Jesus Christ just two days ago after being presented the gospel. While we are here, in Wagi, about two months, we will get to disciple and encourage some of these new believers. It has been so great to hear their testimonies and their clear understanding of the gospel and how Jesus alone could do the work to save them. One of the big struggles church plants face here in Papua New Guinea is the people often adopt a works-based system. These baby believers have rejected all that and are trusting by faith that Jesus' finished work alone has secured their salvation. Be sure to remember these two, Ray and Jess Willett, and their children in your prayers, and especially with your wallet. <laughs> what is the name? What is the name of the person mentioned in the Bible? who lost his salvation, and what book is he recorded in? The name of the person who lost his salvation, and what book of the Bible is it recorded in? You get a Maserati! There is no person in the Bible who's recorded as lost to salvation, and there is no book in the Bible that confirms that you can or will lose your salvation because it's not there. You get a Maserati. Jim's not here. He should be celebrating with you. Instead, he's out doing other stuff. He's 